0: We are looking at Jesus' letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. We've got to the start of Revelation 3, which is the letter to the church at Sardis. This is the most condemnatory of Jesus' letters, and this church had a great reputation had known much blessing in the past. She had a name, but alas, that was now something that was in the past. And in the present, she was in a state of spiritual slumber. She was asleep, and she was complacent. And we're going to finish what Jesus has to say to this church this evening. So let's read again revelation 3 verses 1 to 6 to remind ourselves of this letter revelation 3 1 to 6 and to the angel of the church in sardis writes these things says he who has the seven spirits of god and the seven stars i know you your works that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead be watchful Uh, That means awake and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in whites for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we all have ears. And may we hear what the Spirit of Christ is saying to the church today. So a complacent church that was resting on its laurels. Jesus says, as we looked last time, wake up. Strengthen the things that you have and remember remember what you have heard from me now two things this evening jesus finishes this letter with a warning as he does to all the churches a warning and then a promise so the negative the warning and then the positive the promise what warning does he give to this complacent church he says, if you don't wake up, I will come upon you as a thief in the night and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. He says, if you don't repent, that's the word that he uses. Uh, the end, uh, middle of verse three, the end of the sentence, hold fast and repent or you will die in your sleep, he says. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say repent to all of these churches. He said repent to Ephesus, to Pergamon, and he will say it to Laodicea at the end of chapter 3. But what we've got to ask this evening in looking at this warning is what have they got to repent of? the poet Leonard Cohen said, you say repent, repent, but I don't know what you meant. So it's a pertinent question to ask, what have these believers got to confess and to turn back to the Lord from and to? What what is it? Because There is no mention here of heresy. In some of the other churches where he says repent, there is false teaching. So we can understand them having to repent of that. Neither is there immorality going on here. Again, we can understand him saying, turn away from your sins. There is no outrageous immorality. There is no... Dissension, Uh, there is no um, cliques or splits in the church. So they haven't got that to repent of. So we've got to ask ourselves, what has the church in Sardis got to confess and turn away from? And this is scary, right? She's got to repent of her spiritual complacency. And this is the danger of spiritual sleep. If you are slumbering spiritually, you're not aware of the fact. you think that everything is all right. So once you begin to wake up to the fact, then you're already starting to repent. Now Jesus uh, puts it in a very memorable way here uh, in terms of what they have to repent of verse 4 you have a few names even in sardis who have not defiled their garments have not soiled their garments now if you would have lived in cardiff in the 1950s there would have been much pollution around and you can see it uh, on the walls of some of our buildings, uh, how dirty the walls have got over the years because of the pollution in the atmosphere. And in the 1950s, if you'd have gone out, uh, especially on a foggy November day, by the end of the day, your shirt would have become soiled because the atmosphere was so polluted. And I think it's something like this in a church that is not guilty of heresy, not guilty of obvious, outrageous sins, but there can be something in the atmosphere that, unbeknown to the people, pollutes their spiritual character. Uh, John MacArthur is helpful here. He uh, gives this definition of defiled garments. Think of a white shirt by the end of the day. Uh, turning uh, uh, dirty. Defiled means to smear, to pollute or to stain. And garments here refer to character, MacArthur says, a godly character. I think this was the problem in Sardis. Uh, these people that had become complacent, their characters had become polluted what about us have we become worldly not in an outward sense maybe we are I don't know but in terms of our attitude character character uh, this is how John puts it the same uh, author as revelation in his letter You know, just as Cardiff in the 50s was polluted, right? The world. For all that is in the world, this is how we get uh, our garments defiled. The lust of the flesh. What's that? Ah, we heard about it in our reading. Uh, We begin to talk, maybe, like the world does. Uh, We begin uh, to uh, give in to our passions and our lusts like the world does we're not careful of what we read or what we look at the lust of the eyes Uh, we uh, are living in a society where we're bombarded with things that tempt us and we can have an impeccable outward character but our eyes can become polluted and then the pride of life Wasn't that the problem in Sardis? She was proud of her reputation. She had a name to live by. Uh, Some of you can remember, I'm sure, uh, churches uh, where women uh, wore head coverings and uh, these churches would have been very strict about that. Nothing wrong with that if that's a person's conviction. But sometimes very subtly this kind of worldly attitude would come in where those wearing hats would in a way be competing with one another in terms of who had the best hats. So even though outwardly you are as it were showing that you're not worldly because you're wearing a hat in terms of your attitude you're as worldly as anybody that that's the kind of of corruption that can come in to a slumbering church. That unholy trinity, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And what Jesus Christ is saying to the church in Sardis and what he might be saying to the churches today is wake up from this thing and repent. Realize that the kingdom of heaven The Christian life is not these outward things. It's not meat and drink and what you wear and what you don't wear. It's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And if we don't wake up and if we don't turn from these things, then he can come. He mentions... I will come as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. That's not the second coming. He uses that metaphor of his coming in judgments in his second coming. But Jesus Christ can come in judgments upon the churches now. I mentioned in church council on Tuesday how Welsh nonconformity at the end of the 19th century, none of us were around then, but the chapels were full, right? They were full. There was very little gospel being preached. They were just social centers. And everybody thought it was hunky-dory. And then an earthquake happened, the First World War, and these people didn't know what had hit them. And the First World War emptied many of the non-conformist chapels. Those that had been converted in the 0405 revival, many of them had left the chapels and started mission halls. They were alive, you see. But the old chapels that did once have revival, they had fallen asleep and they thought everything was all right. But the Lord came upon them suddenly in judgments Uh, Somebody like Lloyd-Jones believes that the First World War was a judgment. The churches didn't have any foundation for that. And one wonders, I have to be careful here. I'm not a prophet, but one wonders, with COVID, isn't this going to be a test to the churches in our land? Is our Christianity robust enough to withstand the trials and tribulations of life? If we're spiritually asleep, it's not. But if we're grounded in Christ, then yes, he will keep you. He will keep you. There's nothing sadder. I mentioned it last time. There's nothing sadder than a church That had a name. And all it's got is that name now. Cruis Road, the Presbyterian Church there. I mentioned it last Sunday evening. I think the founding stones are still there. The name is still there. But it's a mosque. It's a mosque. May we repent. We don't stop repenting when we're converted. And I remember hearing Richard Owen Roberts preaching from this pulpit. And as was his manner, he would be walking about. And he used this illustration of the Christian life as one of continual repentance. Don't we need to repent, brothers and sisters, of our complacency? May may we ask the Lord, show me, Lord, what I personally need to repent of. A church is only as good as the Christians that are gathered in it. So that's the warning. But what I want us to concentrate on here is the promise that Jesus gives even to this church where the majority of its members had grown complacent. Verse 4, Jesus says, Yet you do have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Isn't that lovely? In this church, where Jesus is really rebuking them, it's the harshest of the seven letters, he says the majority of the church are fast asleep spiritually and they're not aware of it yet there are a few in sardis even he says who are still awake here is what richard phillips says an excellent commentator christ's revival program shows the value of every individual christian especially when awakened to serve the cause of christ in the church It is with this calling in mind that godly Christians often decide to remain in a weak or dying church, so long as the church has not entirely rejected the authority of God's word, hoping to be used by God to stimulate new spiritual life. I take my hat off to those Christians who remained in chapels in the 60s and 70s. We came out, but a number of Christians... Did differently, and from conviction, they remained in small chapels even when there was no gospel being preached because they believed God had put them there and God has honored them. And many of those chapels now have turned back to the gospel. I don't know if there are people listening uh, this evening online, but you. Uh, are in a small church it looks as if the church is dying maybe and you're about to give up hope but stay where you are god has put you there and as long as you are alive in christ he can use he can use even the embers and blow by his spirits fresh life into that church you know isn't that part of strengthening the things that remain we should never give up on a church. We have it easy here in the city. If you go out of Cardiff, up the valleys, to Midwest Wales, churches are few and far between, often without pastors, just a handful of believers And yet, they're given grace to remain faithful. May we count our blessings here. Now, Jesus describes these few. Don't you feel like being one of those few tonight? Don't you want, even if we are tending towards complacency in our day and age, don't you want to be one of the few, as in Sardis, who do not get corrupted. Now, Jesus says they are worthy.
1: They are worthy.
0: These handful of people in Sardis, they are worthy. Now, that sounds, doesn't it, as if they somehow merit salvation. Now, that can't be the case. That can't be. Because a few chapters later, we're told there's no one worthy. It's only the Lamb. Jesus Christ who's worthy. So we can't mean that they're worthy to merit salvation. Can't mean that. What about they're sinless then? Here are these Christians around them. Nominal Christians. Become corrupt. And these special Christians in the minority are somehow pure. Have you ever met a sinless Christian? Or have you met somebody who thinks they're a cut above the rest? Spurgeon, I'm fond of quoting, he once had the experience of meeting a Christian uh, who was perfectly sanctified. This is how Spurgeon put it. I have met with some of these perfectly sanctified Christians, but I could have spoiled their perfection simply by treading on their corns. And I believe I have done so, for they seem to be immensely cross when I have done that. And then Spurgeon went on to say, I met only one perfect man, and he was a perfect nuisance. (laughs) So Jesus isn't saying these worthy minority are somehow purer. No, no. What does it mean? Have a look at the description. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me for they are worthy. They shall walk with me. That's a lovely description of the Christian life. When we walk with the lord you see the majority of the believers in Sardis because of their complacency um, if you ever go to the middle east uh, you will still see this today people because of the heat will wear sandals no socks and even today people might wear including men long clothing robes and after being out walking in the heat and in the dust Uh, Your robes will become soiled, will become dirty, and your feet also will become dirty. That is why uh, you had Jesus, as was the custom of the time, washing the disciples' feet. So, this is a picture of the Christian life. We have been washed, once and for all, in the blood of Jesus Christ. But, we still need to have our feet washed because we're living in a polluted atmosphere whether it's the world or whether it's a nominal church i don't know we're living in a polluted place and so when we think of these minority who are awake and who are worthy what we're thinking of is this they're still walking with the lord are we still going on with the lord that's a good question isn't it i've said this before i can think of people who had spectacular testimonies and who seemed to be going much faster than me when i was starting off in the christian life they're no longer walking with the lord are we still walking with the lord it does not mean that we are sinless it does not mean that we're a cut above the rest what it does mean is this that we are not living on our past reputation. We're walking now with the Lord in the light of his words. And it means that we are keeping short accounts with God. Yes, we still sin. Yes, we still fail him. Yes, we still fall. But... As John says in chapter 1 of his letter, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you flesh that out, it just means what we had in our reading from Ephesians 4. We pattern our life according to the word of God. And we do it by the enabling of his spirit. We put on Christ because Christ is in us and we fail. And we confess. We keep short accounts with God. It's as if we have our feet washed every day. We don't need to be converted all over again, but we need every day to confess How he's still walking with the Lord. I'm not asking, are you running? (laughs) Maybe you're not even plodding. Maybe you're crawling. That's better than going back. Now, three promises that Jesus gives here to those who are still walking. They're not living on some past reputation, they're presently seeking the Lord and seeking to read his word, pray and put it into practice. Three lovely promises. The first is this, they shall walk with me in white. And then verse five, he that overcomes shall be clothed in white in uh, the start of the surface chapter 7 of revelation verse 9 i beheld a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb how were they clothed clothed in white robes one of the elders asked john who are these who are arrayed in white And he's given the answer, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What is this promise referring to? Oh, Jesus says, if you walk with me, you will have a white robe of righteousness washed in my blood. Do you know what that refers to? It refers to imputed righteousness. That is the righteousness that Jesus built up when he was here on earth. His perfection and it's put into our account. It's got nothing to do with our efforts. It's a direct transfer. Isn't that wonderful? As uh, the Moravian hymnist puts it, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are and my glorious dress. I do like to wear suits. <laughs> especially after being in lockdown. It's good to be able to wear a suit. I've only had this suit for a year, but with time, it'll probably uh, become worn out. The suits that Christ gives, this spotless robe, the same appears while ruined nature sinks in years no age can change its glorious hue the robe of christ is ever new you never sold suits like that richard the robe of christ's righteousness gets better with age that's what you can enjoy and then it's not just that is it Uh, this robe of white is not just imputed righteousness it's imparted righteousness what's that that's the process when we're born again of the spirit a process starts whether we like it or not god begins a good work in us and he leaves us in this world so that we become sanctified so that our sin is dealt with not forgiveness now but we are purified inside and we're never going to be perfect No such thing as a sinless, perfect Christian. We're never going to be perfect inherently until we die. And the moment we die, we have an inherent,
1: perfect
0: righteousness. That's something to look forward to. And then, Jesus puts it, they shall walk with me in white. It's not just after we die, I think. Surely he's referring to our walk in this life. That it's possible, even in this corrupt world, to have, I don't know, a touch of heaven. Didn't we sing when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word? What a glory he sheds on our way. We know believers, don't we? Even some who stayed in small chapels where they didn't hear much gospel preaching over the years and they thrived because Christ was meeting with them. They walked, communed with him. He walks with me and talks with me along life's journey. Narrow way. So that's one promise. I've got to hurry through these. The second promise is this I will not blot out his name from the book of life. The church in Sardis was putting a huge emphasis on its name, its reputation. And what Jesus is saying to them is this Your name doesn't mean anything to me. Remember when he sent the disciples out to preach the gospel? And they came back to him reporting results they reported all sorts of wonderful things happening and jesus said to them don't rejoice in that don't rejoice in that rejoice in this that your names are written in the lamb's book of life do we rejoice this evening that our names are in the register of heaven. In the first century, if a person um, broke the law, and this applied to Christians who just obeyed God rather than men, their names would be wiped out of the city's register. They would be treated as criminals. It was happening in Sardis. And Jesus is saying to these believers, don't worry about that. Don't worry if people trample your name. Your name is still in one book, and it's the only book that matters. It's the book of life. Isaiah speaks of our names not just being in the book, but being engraved on the palms of God's hands. Imagine that. We've got in the safe there a wedding register of all the marriages in the church, a register. And it's written in indelible ink, which means that that ink is never going to go out. My friends, your name and my name is written in that book of life in heaven. We are betrothed to Jesus Christ. We're going to be married to him one day. And that name, that bond is never, ever, ever, ever going to be wiped out. Isn't that wonderful? We're going to sing in a minute, my name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the promise is given. More happy, maybe, but they're not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. See, on the third promise, the emphasis on the name still. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Oh, what a wonderful promise. If we don't care about our reputation, I say this with great care. If we don't care about the reputation of our church, that was the problem with Sardis. She was more concerned about her name. Oh, if we are more concerned about the name of Christ. Jesus says, I will confess you to my father. Somebody asked George Whitefield, the 18th century evangelist, why don't you do the same as Wesley and start a denomination? Wouldn't it be wonderful, just as Wesley started the Wesleyan Methodists, that you, more Reformed, have Whitefieldian Methodist, well, it wouldn't have been a good idea because it's too much of a mouthful. Do you know what Whitfield said? Let the name of Whitfield perish. When we're complacent as Christians, we're more concerned about our names, our reputations than we are about Christ. And Jesus is saying here. Listen, listen, if you walk with me, even if it hurts, I will confess your name to the only one that matters, my father. We may not be much in the world, right? I'm sorry to disappoint you. We may not be much in the eyes of the world. But does it matter if our names are written in heaven if our names are engraved on the hearts of the saviour if our names are even mentioned in heaven uh, i'll close with this hymn we can't sing it because it's not in our uh, digital collection uh, maybe you're feeling like this I don't want to be like Sardis. I'm sure you don't either. I don't want to be complacent. As I get older, I don't want to get into a rut. Even if we're in a minority in evangelicalism today, don't you want to be like the few in Sardis that still walked with the Lord? And it's tough, isn't it? And sometimes we feel we're not going to make it. And this is what this hymnist felt like. Oh, he turns to Christ. Oh, thou, the contrite, the broken-hearted sinner's friend, who loving lovest to the end, on this alone my hopes depend, that thou will plead for me, that you will mention my name before your father. Is this you? When weary in the Christian race, it's wearisome, isn't it, at the moment? Far off appears my resting place, and fainting, I mistrust thy grace. Then, Saviour, please plead for me. And when the full light of heavenly day reveals my sins in dread array, say, I have washed them all away. I plead, yea, plead for thee. Praise be to God. We've got a man in heaven, we've got a representative in heaven, and he is ever pleading for us. What a saviour. Now we're going to sing the hymn I uh, quoted from, well not the last one, but A Debtor to Mercy Alone. It's 566 if you've got a hymn book at home, the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength, will completes. His promise is aye, yes, and amen. So let's worship him by standing to sing this
1: hymn.
0: In heaven we so often feel that our names are worthless and we sometimes uh, see ourselves as just uh, completely uh, ignored and bereft in a world that is just going after the opposite of what we hold precious. And oh Father as in the West it seems as if uh, the uh, Church of Jesus Christ is in a state of slumber, and it just seems as if thou hast forgotten her. And yet, we thank thee that it is not so, that our names are engraven not just on thy palms but upon thy hearts. And we just thank thee that it is thy church. And we thank thee that whether by few or by many, it matters not to thee. And oh Lord, just deliver us from the complacency of Sardis. We thank thee for the heritage which we enjoy here oh god deliver us from living on past reputation and make us even today walk with thee in the light of thy word in the power of the spirit and may we know times of refreshing from thy presence and now may the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.